No matter how anemic the faith was on occasion, regardless of the depths of their doubts, and even when they were maddeningly disobedient, this gracious God who had elected them continually stuck with them. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In the last podcast, we concentrated on two of Jacob's sons, the eldest Reuben and Judah, the fourth oldest. This week, we will treat Jacob himself in an unaccustomed role, namely that of a religious reformer. Saying that this was an unusual position for Jacob is an understatement. From the beginnings of his life, he has struggled, scratched, clawed, lied through his teeth, connived, and even wrestled to get ahead. Stating this politely, Jacob was one of the more colorful characters in the whole Bible. One scholar dubbed him as a trickster. That moniker may not be flattering, but it is apt. This week, however, we are going to pay attention to an episode in Jacob's life where he seems to have gotten his religious act together. In Genesis 35, Jacob appears to be something of a religious reformer or even a spiritual guru. This episode starts with God issuing a command to Jacob. He is to return to Bethel, the same place where he had fled to when trying desperately to get away from his brother Esau. Jacob had deceived his father, Isaac, to procure the blessing that was supposed to go to his brother. That incident is found in Genesis 28, verses 10-22. When God appeared to Jacob in a dream featuring a ladder reaching to the heavens, complete with angels or messengers going up and down this celestial ladder, and reiterated the divine promise of progeny and land made previously to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob responded that he had seen, quote-unquote, the house of God, and, quote-unquote, the gate of heaven. That's in verse 17 of chapter 28. Of course, in Hebrew, house of God is Bethel. That was the place where Jacob was being told to return as this incident unfolds. That's in verse 1 of 35. Not only was Jacob commanded to go back to Bethel, he was ordered also to build an altar there. God apparently conceived of this as a sort of pilgrimage, or at least involving serious religious activity. Without missing a beat, Jacob speaks to his whole household. Evidently sensing the nature of the trip, Jacob asks those around him to prepare for the journey. However, the preparation had to do with certain religious and spiritual activities rather than mundane ones. Jacob asked that his extended family do three things. One, they were to get rid of their foreign gods. That's in verse 2 of chapter 35. What exactly were these foreign gods, and why did members of his family have them? Is this a reference to the so-called household gods, or teraphim, that Rachel had stolen from her father, that's way back in verse 19 of chapter 31. Or was this an example of residual polytheism, 
that existed in Jacob's family? Much later in the biblical story, Joshua speaks to Israel and admonishes them to, quote, put away the gods which your ancestors served beyond the river, that is Mesopotamia and Egypt. That's in verse 14 of chapter 24 of the book of Joshua. Somehow, Jacob's family had to deal with polytheistic practices. As a true reformer, he makes no bones about their needing to deal with this besetting sin. It is striking that Jacob does this on his own initiative. God need not prompt him. The second thing Jacob asks his family to do is purify yourselves. This suggests a spiritual cleansing of some kind. Purifying oneself may have involved prayers, self-reflection, or some sort of ritual, or all of these. No details are provided. Still, attending to one's interior spiritual stance seems to be indicated with this charge to purify yourselves. Clearly, Jacob believes that the trip he and his family are about to take requires focused religious activity of some kind. Again, he does this without divine prompting. The last thing Jacob calls for is for his family to quote-unquote change your garments. Though there is insufficient context and no special explanation, the charge to change one's garments hints also of religious activity. There is a reference in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, where David changes his clothes in preparation for worship. Something like that may be reflected in this passage as well. It could be a combination of literal and metaphorical usage. In virtually every human culture, clothing is appropriate to differing sorts of activity. People dress for the occasion, so to speak. Typically, this is so ingrained that we do this without being particularly self-conscious. But it does not require much imagination to note that we dress one way for work, whether for so-called blue or white-collar work, for play, for being casual, for being formal, when we go to church or synagogue, for a ball game, for jogging, for gardening, and so forth. Clothes may not make the man or the woman, but it would be naive to think that we do not put a great deal of thought into what a particular occasion demands relative to what we plan on wearing. In the Genesis context, changing one's garments may have a double-duty purpose. It may intimate garb, appropriate to certain kinds of religious activity, or it may suggest a metaphorical use in which changing clothes is indicative of more profound personal changes as well. The phrase could easily serve both purposes. Jacob makes sure that those to whom he made these requests understand the nature of their journey. He points out that the destination is Bethel, that he is to build an altar there to the very deity who had answered him when he was in serious trouble, a God who had been with him ever since. That's in verse 3 of chapter 35. The narrator does not mention what the family members did to purify themselves or change their garments, 
but certainly underscores their willingness to get rid of the foreign gods that they had been hoarding. As well, they relinquished their earrings, jewelry that had religious functions. That's in verse 4 of chapter 35. At the very least, they had forsaken their polytheistic tendencies. Jacob hid these items under the oak near Shechem. Even this suggests religious activity because oaks often have a religious dimension to them. As the family heads for Bethel, God does not remain inactive. The deity made the population of the surrounding cities terror-stricken so that they would not bother Jacob's family. Though they were in hostile territory, God was protecting this little family. That's in verse 5 of chapter 35. Taking advantage of this divine protection, Jacob and the members of his family arrived at Bethel, whose other name was Luz. That's in verse 6. Just as God had commanded, Jacob immediately built an altar and renamed the site. Its new name was El Bethel, a palindromic name of sorts that means God of the house of God. That's in verse 7. Jacob wanted the altar to commemorate the occasion when God had revealed the divine self to him when he was running away from Esau's wrath. At this juncture, there is an odd announcement. Out of the blue, we are told that Deborah, a name we had never heard of before in these Genesis stories, who had been Rebekah's nurse, just died. She was buried under an oak. Again, recall the sacred character of these trees, just below Bethel. The oak was even named. It was called Alon Bakuth, or the Oak of Weeping. That's in verse 8 of chapter 35. The question is, what is the purpose of this information? This answer calls for a little interpretive humility in that the statement is so cryptic. Having said that, I think the purpose of this information is twofold. One, it lets us know that everyone in Jacob's family including blood relatives, servants, in-laws, and the like, are involved in this religious experience. So what if this is the first time we realize that a woman by the name of Deborah was Rebecca's nurse? She, just as much as anyone else, no matter how high or low on the family totem pole, so to speak, is to be included in this pilgrimage. Everyone in God's elect people is eligible for blessing, just as in the future, quote-unquote, all the families of the earth, that's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, will be the recipients of God's richest blessing. Deborah may have been relatively unimportant in the family structure, but was absolutely equal in God's eyes. Two, hearing of the death of Rebekah's nurse makes us think of Rebekah. For a while in this family's history, Rebecca was a mover and shaker. She orchestrated events. Some of that was positive, and some of it was negative. She once expressed her willingness to go with Abraham's servant to become Isaac's wife when her mother and her brother were hesitant. That's in verse 58 of chapter 24 of Genesis. Also, God appeared to her and revealed the fate of the two sons she was carrying in her womb. That's in verses 22 through 23 of chapter 25. 
she was the only one in the family privy to that divine communication. Even the great patriarch Isaac was kept in the dark. That was part of the positive ledger for Rebecca. But she also had deficits on the other side of the ledger. She favored her younger son Jacob over her older son Esau. That's in verse 28 of chapter 25. More troubling, perhaps, is that she was complicitous in helping Jacob cheat his brother and deceive his father in the matter of the paternal blessing. That's in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 27. She clearly went behind her husband's back and had little regard for Esau, her older son. To be sure, she thought that this was the only way to ensure that God's will be done, but she made no effort whatsoever to think through whether there were more moral options available to her. For example, she might have told Isaac about the divine revelation. In any case, though God could work through these dubious behaviors, presumably God would have preferred to work through a more ethical posture. However, since the notice about the death of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, brings Rebecca's story to mind, it underscores the element of divine grace operative in God's dealings with this elect family. They were not saints. Indeed, they were terribly flawed. Sometimes they lacked faith, sometimes they doubted, and sometimes they were disobedient or took the absolutely worst path. Yet, God did not abandon them. No matter how anemic the faith was on occasion, regardless of the depths of their doubts, and even when they were maddeningly disobedient, this gracious God who had elected them continually stuck with them. If God could work through someone as morally compromised as Rebecca, there is hope for everyone else. Remembering Deborah and Rebecca helps us to supply a context for this episode. Right after this information about Deborah, God appeared to Jacob again. That's in verse 9 of chapter 35. In this appearance, God changed, seemingly for the second time, Jacob's name to Israel. The first time is in chapter 32, verses 24 through 30. Israel, of course, means something like he who strives with God or God strives. Henceforth, there is no discernible pattern for knowing whether Jacob will be referred to by that name or Israel. Continuing, God emphasizes the promise of many descendants with an added wrinkle. God encourages Jacob slash Israel to be fruitful and multiply. At the same time, the deity notes that a nation and a company of nations eventually will be evidence of the fulfillment of the divine promise. The wrinkle is God's predicting that kings will be in the future of the peoples issuing from Jacob slash Israel. That's in verse 11 of chapter 35. As this theophany is taking place, the deity self-identifies as El Shaddai, or God Almighty. Then, God repeats the promise of land, the same land that God had promised to Abraham and Isaac. That's in verse 12. At that point, God left. That's in verse 13. 
Jacob's reaction to God's appearance is to consecrate the area. To that end, he set up a stone pillar, poured out a drink offering on it, and anointed it with oil. These were all religious and liturgical gestures, meant to sanctify God's appearance, what God had said, and the whole occasion itself. For a final time, Jacob named the place once more, Bethel, or the house of God. This was some pilgrimage. The first time Bethel was in view, only Jacob was involved. This time around, Jacob's whole family is involved. The elect people are just that, a people, a community, or at least on the way. This is illustrated by a decisive event that occurs when the extended family is on the way home. While they were some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, hard labor. That's in verse 16. Rachel was comforted by a midwife who told her not to be afraid that she was about to deliver another son. Unfortunately, the midwife miscalculated somewhat in that Rachel died during childbirth. As she was dying, she named her baby Benoni, which translates to son of my sorrow. For the very first time, though, Jacob inserts himself into the naming process. This is the first son in which he had a part in naming the child. Evidently, he did not like the negative cast to the name Rachel suggested, so he renamed the baby Benjamin which means either son of the right hand or the son of the south. That's in verse 18 of chapter 35. In either case, that name is much more positive than son of my sorrow. Rachel had just given Jacob his twelfth son. In the future, Jacob or Israel would have twelve units, conventionally translated as tribes. Rachel was buried with great ceremony on the way to Ephrath, another name for Bethlehem. That's in verse 19 of chapter 35. Jacob acted respectfully and aptly in setting up a pillar on her grave, the site of which the narrator notes is still there. That's in verse 20. Israel continued this significant journey, pitching his tent beyond the Tower of Ader. That's in verse 31. Then. Once more, we have an out-of-the-blue piece of information that is hard to incorporate into the story. We learn that Reuben, Jacob's eldest son, had sex with Bilhah, a secondary wife or concubine to his father, Jacob or Israel. That's in verse 22 of chapter 35. Why here? Why now? Again, interpretive diffidence is appropriate. On the analogy of our take on the information about Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, there are two possible points to accent. One is that this whole trip had been a family affair, whether having to do with someone's nurse or a firstborn son. Unlike the first time Bethel is important in the saga, more than an individual is in focus, a family, a community, a soon-to-be people is in focus instead. Two, just as realizing that Deborah's death made us think about Rebecca and how she comported herself positively and negatively, 
being aware of Reuben's egregious violation of a family taboo is something we can never forget. As it turns out, Jacob, Israel, never forgot it either. He was aware of this abomination right away, but did nothing about it. In the end, though, he vilified his firstborn son in his final statement to his family. That's in verses 3 through 4 of chapter 49. As we pointed out before, these ancestors were hardly portrayed in idealistic terms. Still, the promise goes forward apace. Immediately after we are informed by Reuben's gross violation, we are treated to a genealogy which rehearses the twelve sons that had been born to Jacob or Israel. Never forget that this story began with an old, childless couple, Abraham and Sarah. It took years and years before they welcomed Isaac into the world. Isaac's future seemed in doubt until he prayed for Rebekah to get pregnant. That resulted in the birth of Esau and Jacob. God's inscrutable will and the machinations of Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, led Jacob to become the bearer of the promise of progeny and land. This genealogy underlines that the story is going in the right direction. Jacob, Israel, now has twelve sons. They will become a people in the next book, Exodus. This chapter ends with Jacob and Esau being together for the last time when their father Isaac dies. This took place at Hebron, where both Abraham and Isaac once lived. That's in verse 27. We learn that Isaac was 180 years old when he died. The ages of these ancestors are not on a par with the worthies listed in Genesis 1-11, through but are still amazing. It was customary to record fantastic ages in past epochs, which were valued as extremely significant. The brothers, Jacob and Esau, once at each other's throats, buried their father, Isaac, peacefully and honorably. It is a fitting conclusion to an episode which highlights Jacob as a religious reformer. This episode underscores several of the features that will play out as the story progresses. It deals with the ancestors, sometimes flawed, sometimes rising to the occasion. It accents the community aspect. This story is not about individuals or individualism. Mostly, though, it accents God's grace. Once God elects the people, the deity sticks with them when they are faithful and when they are not when they are obedient, and when they are not, and when they believe, and when they doubt. The people could not always be counted on, but that did not hold true with their God. God's grace overcame anemic faith, less than stellar obedience, and profound doubt. The people left much to be desired. God, however, was a constant. Once again, let me remind you to record any questions you have and send them to me on my email, fspina106 at gmail.com, and also go to my website, faspina.com, and record your email there so that I can communicate you when I get my act together to get these mini-courses done. 
keeping in mind that we'll take off the third week of November, which is Thanksgiving, and then we'll go off again. And then we will also take off a week in December as well. Thank you. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, all you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.